you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Sarah Eisen here at Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Kramer has the morning off. Uh, futures modestly softer here after the revolt in Russia over the weekend. A lot of questions and debate about the impact on stocks and commodities. Busy week for data. S&P coming off the first weekly loss since March. Our roadmap begins with the final week of the month, quarter, and the half. Watching the, ma- the macro market risks after that failed weekend mutiny and insurrection in Russia. Plus shares of Tesla are there, down ahead of the open. Goldman downgrades the stock, citing a difficult pricing environment for EVs. And a tug of war over Alphabet, downgraded at UBS, seeing AI risks ahead. While a new B of A survey suggests a Google search boost from AI tools. We begin with the markets entering the final week of the month, the quarter and the half, as we said. Interesting, guys. Some things working arguably against uh, the bulls to start the week. Not a lot of earnings data. We'll get some uh, buyback blackout windows. And we've had a run. Uh, J.P. Morgan this morning asks whether or not we go back 5% to the, some moving averages, 10%, 20 They think 5 is more likely. Put you in the, somewhere in the neighborhood of the low 4200s Just a garden variety pullback there. Yeah, I mean, positioning and sentiment. Positioning was light, sentiment was negative, have served as big catalysts. And some of the trading notes this morning, including from Goldman Sachs, a fixed income note, saying that they're, they're not as much powerful tailwinds as they have been over the past few months of the year. No longer the case. They also, and just keep an eye on this, it's, it's what happens toward the end of the quarter and the month, some rebalancing. And it's significant, this go-around from pensions. In other words, money flowing out of stocks into treasuries to try to square up. So we could see a, some of that action. Goldman Sachs model estimates 27 billion of U.S. equities to sell for month and quarter end from pension. So that could happen. But fundamentally, it's, it's kind of a light data week. We get the PCE deflator on Friday. That's the biggie. And, and then the, the central bankers all speak on Wednesday in Sintra, Portugal, which is the big ECB forum. Which With I'm, you. Which I'm honored to be <laughs> moderating, yes. Wait, 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 sorry. Who's doing that, Sarah? I'm doing it, too. Oh, you're, oh, Did you wait, that? You. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very big privilege. It, 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 it is. Listen, we can't. I, I, you know, we can kid about it, promoting <laughs> it, but it should be promoted endlessly because it's uh, such an important sit down. And and as you've made the point, they're not all fully aligned here in terms of what they're doing, right? Certainly on the speed, they all kind of speed, lean right. hawkish. Not except for BOJ. BOJ and China are in a league of their own over there. But but the other three are focused on fighting inflation, which is coming down too slowly for them, but they're going in different speeds, like Bank of England surprising with a double, and ECB being more hawkish in the commentary than Powell. And Powell sort of soft promising, or at least saying that it's a good guess that we're going to have two more rate hikes on the dots. You know, a lot of the strategists are writing about it this morning, this this conversation and what they're looking for, just for some flavor, guys, from the BMO uh, note this morning, the trading note. Powell speaks on Wednesday with the heads of the ECB, BOE, and BOJ on a policy panel that is likely, they say, to outline the progress made globally in reestablishing price stability and the need to continue such efforts. That's the whole game, right? And, and, and another, Dave Lutz also writes about it at the top of his notes. We want to see how much more they're looking to squeeze borrowers. And the other interesting element to this conversation is going to be Russia, because the geopolitics are back 
on the front burner. And that's what happened over the weekend. We're, we're, we don't know if there's going to be much market reaction to this. We've got our eye on the oil market because right. obviously Russia is still a key exporter. And Europe has so far gotten by with lower ga- natural gas prices. But if there is, if this is seriously a threat, or at least breaks the sort of air of invulnerability of Vladimir Putin, what does that mean? I think it raises a lot of questions, and I think it raises a lot of questions for investors and for central bankers, too, especially the ones in Europe that have to deal with the energy repercussions. Without a doubt. I mean, I know we were probably all glued to our whatever it was on Saturday morning, certainly, as Grozin was potentially making his way towards Moscow, only to then turn around. But it did raise any number of well, an endless sort of stream of questions, of course, many of which we still have no answers to in terms of what it will ultimately mean. Of course, the war continues um, very much so, Carl, uh, at this point uh, in Ukraine, but perhaps strengthening their hand as Russia does seem to be at least preoccupied, perhaps, in other ways. Ruble initially dropped 3 percent on the open, and then it kind of came back. We look at that as the barometer, obviously, for confidence around, around Russia and the markets, although it's hard to get a clean read on that. And then, you know, oil market has behaved, but we'll um, keep an eye on it. The only other market, guys, that we'll get to later is the private markets, which have been uh, sort of ascendant today, whether it's the Wolf Speed deal and the $2 billion coming from Apollo, whether it's Pelagis buying a portfolio out of Blackstone of Industrial, which we'll get to, whether it's an SL Green deal, uh, whether it's Vista selling a business to IBM. The private markets are actually <laughs> taking the lead from the public markets, at least when it comes to news this morning, all of which we will get to. Yeah, uh, and some pretty encouraging news, at least for commercial real estate in New York City. Potentially. As part of that story. Uh, but we do want to get to the fallout from the mercenary armed revolt in Russia over the weekend. We turn to NBC News chief foreign correspondent Richard Engel, who joins us this morning from Taipei. Richard, great to see you. Um, your thoughts about the weekend? Well, I I think this was a a massive blow. Uh, You just said it a couple of minutes ago. This penetrated this air of invincibility around Vladimir Putin. Dictators, all dictators, Putin included, survive for one reason. They only have one responsibility. That is to provide stability for the elite. Uh, No dictator operates alone. They have an inner circle. And Putin's job for the last 23 years has been to enrich himself and enrich his inner circle and make sure that their money is safe, their power is uh, secure, and their privileges remain consistent. And if he is unable to continue to guarantee that, and now there are serious doubts uh, if he is going to be able to continue that role, uh, it, 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 it raises questions about his ability to maintain the elite's loyalty. Uh, in 2000. 20, a, a, a referendum was passed, and there's no real referendums in Russia, like there's no real elections. It was passed because the elites, the people around Putin, wanted it to be passed, giving him the ability to stay in power until uh, 2036. And he's supposed to be up for re-election. Again, it's a nominal process uh, in, uh, in this spring, in the coming March. So there are now questions, will uh, the elite encourage him to step down, to find some excuse not to uh, continue his mandated path and stay in power effectively for life? So so this was a a profound moment for Russia, because if you look back at, at, at Putin's history, when he faced challenges in the past, uh, when he faced a challenge from the, the leader of Yukos, for example, he crushed him immediately. 
publicly, stripped him of, of everything he had in order to send a message to the people around him that Putin was the only address in town, that he was in charge, and that as long as you stayed loyal to him, everyone and all of their money was safe. Now, uh, will the elites actually trust that Putin can hold things together? All that's happening now publicly, uh, to a degree, is for show. The, we saw, uh, we heard just a, a short while ago from the foreign minister, and he said that on Saturday, in the midst of all of this, the president of Belarus had a phone call and offered to mediate this crisis. We have no idea what the terms of this, uh, this deal uh, are. Uh, under the, the, the publicly announced uh, terms of the deal, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin is supposed to go to, to Belarus, and Wagner is effectively disbanded and, uh, and, and given amnesty. We will see uh, if Prigozhin just sits quietly on his hands in Belarus and goes into retirement. No one I have spoken to believes that is the case. Uh, everyone believes that there are a lot of uh, backroom conversations going on right now between the, the elites in Russia trying to uh, assure them that everything is okay, that everything is stable, that Putin is still the only address in town, and that their positions are secure. As far as Ukraine is concerned, this is the greatest opportunity that Ukraine has had, uh, perhaps since the beginning of the war, certainly since it launched its new offensive uh, a couple of weeks ago. I spoke to a very uh, senior Ukrainian official in the midst of this crisis, and he's told me that uh, from Ukraine's perspective, it was too good to be true. Because now 25,000 men are off the battlefield. The Kremlin is in a degree of disarray. Uh, there is uh, questions about Putin's leadership. There are questions about the leadership of the uh, Ministry of Defense. Uh, Moscow went into a degree of, of, uh, of lockdown. So, so for Ukraine, this is a, uh, I don't want to call it a turning point, uh, but it is it's certainly an opportunity. And Richard, we also wonder what it means for, for China and the strategic view there and the relationship with Russia. Well, you were talking about semiconductors uh, not long ago. That's why I'm here, as, as you uh, talk about all the time on, on this show. Taiwan has this enormous advantage, this key strategic advantage of having a, uh, an almost monopoly position on, uh, on, on semiconductor production. It, it produces 93% of the most advanced semiconductors that are required for AI. Produces 60% of all semiconductors, uh, the computer chips that power pretty much everything in our digital lives. And I was speaking to, to, to CEOs of semiconductors, uh, uh, semiconductor companies here, and they are worried about China. They are worried about uh, the, f the future stability of this island. They want more deterrence uh, to coming from the United States. They want more reassurances because they say if, if the semiconductor industry here is, is threatened, the global economy is, is threatened. And China undoubtedly is watching what is happening in, in Ukraine, learning that taking over a country, even if it is uh, a much smaller adversary, is not easy and that it, it is easy to start wars, very difficult to end them, and that once you go down that path, unexpected twists and turns arise, like the rise of, of this mercenary army, the Wagner Group.
Richard, uh, great to check in with you on, on that longer-term story regarding uh, China-Taiwan, but certainly about the weekend in Russia. Great to see you. Thanks so much, uh, Richard Engel, uh, NBC News. When we Absolutely. come back, uh, David did mention the private markets, $2 billion deal there, as well as uh, some others to talk about. Take a look at the pre-market as uh, we start off a week going into a holiday weekend. We'll talk more about some of the month-end, quarter-end dynamics in a bit when Squawk on the Street continues. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Mentioned a number of things going on in the private markets, including real estate deals. We'll get to some of the other deals as well, but did want to focus on two uh, real estate deals that have gotten people's attention this morning. And they obviously have public market implications. In fact, one of them involves a public market company, Prologis, buying a $3.1 billion industrial property portfolio from Blackstone. So, of course, they're both public companies, but uh, in this case, it's uh, industrial. It's not commercial real estate, and that should that distinction should uh be one that people keep in mind. And of course, industrial has been quite strong and Blackstone continues to have, I think it's as much as, oh, I don't know, $175 billion uh, or, or, or $175 yeah, uh, billion dollars worth of uh, uh, in a global portfolio of industrial real estate. But in this case, being opportunistic, seeing an opportunity to sell, and they did so. Uh, being told, at least from analysts who've had a quick look, 4% cap rate, that's sort of the yield of the property, in other words, to its buyer. So that gives you a sense they're willing to buy it at lower cap rate or lower yield than is available by buying treasuries right now. But the idea is obviously that over time that will go up. These don't require nearly as much upkeep, for example, as a big office building does or an apartment building does. Um, and this is a hot part of the market. The properties in question here, Atlanta, Dallas, South Florida, Washington, D.C., New York, California as well. Um, 3.1 billion is the total price there, uh, and it is uh, obviously an important deal. We'll see how Prologis shares do today, but uh, interesting to note that uh, on the commercial property front, again, an area that has been quite active for uh, some time, and certainly one where Blackstone owns an enormous amount of real estate. The other deal, perhaps getting some attention in commercial real estate uh, circles, is SL Green. Uh, selling a 49.9% interest in a building between 46th and 47th on New York's Park Avenue uh, that values the overall building at about $2 billion. SL Green actually came in here with a preferred some time back. It was originally a, a, a building that was bought by China's HNA. Remember that name? Then it went bankrupt. They paid $2.2 billion in 2017. So $2 billion now, 2017, $2.2 wouldn't seem to be that large a discount given the dislocations that have taken place in the commercial real estate market, particularly when it comes to places like Park Avenue in the 40s and how many people are actually going to work in these buildings at this point. Um, SL Green shares, as you saw, going to be up this morning 
uh, again, on that uh, transaction. Uh, cap rate said to be in the high threes. Checking that seems a little low. But uh, the buyer here um, is Mori Trust. They say a premier development investment company from Tokyo. Uh, and they are now obviously partnering with SL Green to continue to develop or further develop this property as well, which again was acquired by SL Green from HNA or the bankrupt HNA back in uh, September of 2022. So, Carl, you know, to your point, it could be a positive. As rents, as I know you pointed out this weekend, we saw from, uh, I think it was Torsten Slock, hit an all-time high in New York City. But as we know, very different parts of real estate, whether it's industrial, which has been quite strong, whether it's multifamily, which has been fine. But when it comes to commercial real estate and office buildings, not so good. In this case, though, it may at least be a bit in the marketplace that we haven't seen in a very long time. Yeah, I mean, we keep saying New York City is the place where everybody wants to move and nobody wants to go to the office. But uh, the journal with this piece about maybe the Four Seasons Midtown and the plaza uh, reopening would be great uh, for Midtown. I know Robert Frank this morning pointed out, I think second best June ever for luxury apartment sales, four million and up. So the it is I mean, there was a period during COVID where you thought, uh, because price collapse in the city would make it more egalitarian, easier for young people, say, to move into, it has not happened. And that lasted for like a minute. Yeah. Prices were down for a little bit. Rents have soared, I can tell you, as someone who just signed a new rental. I think the office, it's interesting because office is all doom and gloom. SL Green is down, what, 50% over the last yes. year. We were talking to a read analyst from BMO saying, if you have a high tolerance for risk, you might want to get into that, get into that stock. It's been punished enough. But I do know anecdotally, David, people trying to get you know, smaller scale office commercial real estate deals done aren't getting any financing from regional banks. It can be very they just, hard. They don't want to take on risk. Yeah, I mean, that's another important part of it that we did have talked about, of course, the regional and community banks that typically would be the financiers are not willing to, or certainly not at a rate that would make any sense for a potential buyer. Yeah. Well, watch that. Obviously, I got some earnings coming this week. Carnival is going to be one of them. Uh, up sharply for the month. We'll break down the company's quarterly results uh, in a bit. Take a look at the pre-market here as we get set for a fairly busy week for uh, the middle of the summer. Squawking the streets back in a moment. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Carnival out with quarterly results. Stocks under pressure, even though Sima Modi, they're putting out some good data points on demand. Yeah, that's exactly right, Sarah. 31 cent loss, uh, which is a three cent beat for Carnival in the quarterly earnings. $4.91 billion on sales, which also is better than expected, perhaps not as big of a beat as Wall Street has anticipated, given the big run up we've seen in the stock. Let's talk about guidance as well. In the third quarter, the company sees occupancy at 107 percent or higher. And for the full year, occupancy of 100 percent. So the Occupancy numbers continue to move higher as we see demand for cruising return. And it follows those comments we received from uh, Carnival's direct competitor, Royal Caribbean, just two weeks ago when the CEO, Jason Liberty, told me that they're seeing a widening of their customer base, not just millennials and young families, but the older demographic. Baby boomers are now returning to cruises as well. Looking at shares of Carnival down, though, here uh, in pre-market trade as we await for the market to open, I would also point out Carnival has been upgraded by a number of Wall Street analysts in the last two weeks. 
weeks. Deutsche Bank, JP Morgan, Bank of America. On the conference call, which begins at 10 a.m. Eastern, Sarah, we will be looking for uh, not only more color on the guidance for Q3 and Q4 as these recessionary fears linger, but also any plans to consolidate brands. Uh, analysts have been pointing out that Carnival has removed about 22 ships from its fleet. Back to you. Seema, has, has, have the cruise lines had as much pricing power as the other the hotels and the airlines and everyone else that's benefiting from the travel wave? The cruise lines recently have had pricing power, Sarah. Just in the last three to four months, you've seen ticket prices and the cost of experiences on board uh, move higher. But it, they were certainly the last ones to gain pricing power. What they had to do following the pandemic, as you know, they had to cut prices to get people back on board. But now that interest is back, they're certainly, trying, they're certainly starting to raise prices. Got it. Seema, thank you. Seema Modi on Carnival. Again, high expectations. We're going to talk to the CEO in the 11 o'clock hour of Squawk on the Street, Josh Weinstein, about what they're seeing when they're putting out numbers like more than 100 percent occupancy and just how much more demand they see in the pipeline in a changing macro environment. Yeah. And what, what decisions do they make on capacity for the long term? In the meantime, the opening bell coming up in about six minutes. Don't go away. Tesla shares moving lower in the pre-market after being hit with yet another downgrade. This time it's Goldman. Cuts to neutral but raises its target. They were at 185. They go to 248. Goldman says the recent rally better reflects the company's long-term growth potential. Also adds it sees a difficult pricing environment for EVs, although the target raise is because they're assuming a more moderate rate of price declines. Uh, we sort of know what that means as there's a race between pricing coming in and trying to maintain your margin, at least in the auto business. Um, you know, the question I think, Carl, some are, are asking, certainly in the Chinese market, for example, and the Journal had a story today about NEO, even, um, given the weakness in the, in the Chinese consumer is, you know, are they going to face some headwinds as, as, as others are in the EV market there? Not to mention in the U.S. as well, in terms of more competition. We've talked about it a long time. The bulls, led by Ron Barron, who, of course, was on last week. We'll talk about all of the other um, efforts that Tesla has underway that don't make it just a pure automobile company. I mean, the funny thing about these downgrades and Jonas Note, too, and this one as well, they're so bullish. I mean, it's like we think that deliveries are going to be fine and we think this is a great story. Um, the primary reason on this one is, is because they think that the pricing, that, you know, the market's giving it credit for a lot of these strong fundamentals and now it's kind of in line with uh, with other sort of tech companies or even at a premium. The only other risk that is raised, I think that's interesting in this report, is that there could be margin pressure, especially those, uh, you know, automotive non-GAAP gross margins because of the pricing environment. And, and the analyst posits that some of the strength lately in the stock has been, we haven't seen a lot of pricing actions from Tesla in the last few weeks, at least lowering prices, but that the environment is still going to be tough and weighing on profitability. Yeah. Uh, Otherwise, Dave, it's pretty bullish. Yeah, half the note is about how, how many things have gone right in the last That's six months. That's an AI story. Yes, yes. Um, as for China, David mentions it. And in fact, S&P did cut their China forecast uh, for the year. They were at 5.5. Five. Uh, they go down to 5.2. As we've seen, obviously, that, that recovery a bit slower than a lot of people anticipated. And then on U.S. market share, a couple weeks ago, B of A said they see Tesla market share of EVs going from 62 to 18 in the next three years as, your, as a bunch of other entrants are going to have models for sale. This has always been the bear, you know, the bears always argue the competition is coming and Tesla's always shown it's got a great lead. The other big factor Tesla has in its favor is they're all using the charging station. And of course, the margin profile of the company is far superior to any other automaker. 
And let's get the opening bell in the CNBC real-time exchange at the big board today. It is Cartoon Studios celebrating its name change and transfer to the NYSE from the NASDAQ. At the NASDAQ, it's PTC Therapeutics focused on rare disorders celebrating its 10th listing anniversary. By the way, um, speaking of research and medical and biotech, uh, Moderna gets an upgrade today over at UBS. Uh, they go to, uh, for the, actually, another interesting call where they upgrade but trim the target. It also comes on the heels of a couple of pieces in the Times over the weekend about this idea that we're in a golden age for medical research, whether it's cancer vaccines or anything you name. Obes obesity. Yeah, obesity. I mean, that's really where the and, and Novo and Lilly seem to have the lead here on this and just more chatter around, you know, Pfizer's got some contenders as well. But but the market for that for that product and the momentum that it's having just I mean, look at the stock price of Eli Lilly and the fact that now that they're working on innovations around pills instead of just injections, which would make it even more accessible and potentially cheaper for patients. Um, yeah, Pfizer continuing to advance, they're saying, their uh, development program for adults with obesity, type 2 diabetes, but certainly not, you know, not being received well today. Um, that stock is down to your point. Just looking here. Um, advancing clinical program, subject to results in the ongoing phase two trial, discontinuing the clinical development of one of its compounds, though, uh, and that is being uh, not well received by the marketplace. To, to Sarah's point, Lilly, of course, as we pointed out last week, exceeding, it's now $440 billion market value. It is the highest market value. By the way, it's pure, uh, pure pharma uh, and exceeds J&J, &J, which obviously is not uh, pure pharma anyway, but uh, had been the market cap leader, certainly broadly speaking, in that area, on all on the strength of and the belief that these drugs could become, what, $50 billion a year drugs at some point. I mean, so. how much do you hear Ozempic now in the in the zeitgeist? NBO is the other one to watch, of course, Novo Nordisk, which which yes. makes it. Um, the note this morning from, from Jared Holtz of Mizuho, the, the biotech analyst, apparently there was an American Diabetes Association meeting and it was the most followed probably in history because of all the excitement around these drugs. And his conclusion is just that these two are in the lead by a fairly large margin. Um, and that they're well positioned for further innovation on these drugs. Pretty flat open on the Dow, up a couple of points, uh, just down three on the S&P. Interesting chart out of Deutsche today uh, that we're now in the 85th percentile of uh, market stretches in which we have not had a 3% drawdown. So that's 73 trading days, about three months. And that's sort that of- better bad? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's been remarkably stable as we've been hovering here in the mid 4300s, but it's definitely fodder for the bears who argue that there's a bunch of stuff coming in the second half that uh, whether it's unknown unknowns or known unknowns. <laughs> My favorite second half stat from the bull side is Tom Lee, of course, of Fundstrat, who, look, he, he went out on a limb. He said, we're going to have a 25% up year in the market this year. And everybody laughed, of course, said he's always bullish. So far, the market is has done well this year. It's up 13% on the S&P. Where does he say the next 10% is going to come from? Well, here's a stat. He said since 1950, 22 instances when the S&P is up more than 10% by mid-year, the median second half return is 8%. And he gets to 4,700. Just, just looking historically there. But he also says, look, inflationary pressures are going to come down faster than you expect. He said there's a lot of cash on the sidelines, 5.4 trillions of cash. He likes tech. He likes the triple Qs. Of course, that's the bear, the bull case. There are plenty of bear arguments too, which is 
inflation's not coming down fast enough. It's sticky and the Fed's going to have to do more hiking and we could go into a hard landing scenario. I will just point out that bonds are, are rallying today and we're seeing yields lower. So a continuation of last week. And there are worries about the economy. There's the latest data points, and, and they're global. And it's been acting global. We got the German business confidence coming in weaker than expected, adding to more evidence that that com- economy is in recession, Europe's biggest economy. Yeah, uh, UK retail sales negative for uh, the second consecutive month. Actually, I think it was um, uh, over the weekend, BMP said, you look at what's happening with tighter credit. Uh, rates are going higher. Yep. Uh, jobless claims are definitely picking up. And so they see real consumer spending down half a point annualized in Q3 and Q4. Basically, the, the, the bell is tolling for a certain contingent of the consumer. Although over the weekend, Yardeni looking at boomers nest eggs, $75 trillion big, in money markets, in stocks, retirement funds, home you, you equity. Look at David, not me. <laughs> I always said the boomers are what's helping this economy right now. I am not a boomer. <laughs> Just kidding. I You're missed right. it by that much. There's Ed, and obviously Ed, longtime bull, uh, but he's arguing that they they've they haven't be, haven't even begun to spend a lot of this money. And, and so it, same with the federal government. And t- today, president they're talking about President Biden is going to announce plans to of how he's going to disperse the forty billion dollars to different states to speed up broadband, which is part of the promise. This comes out of the infrastructure spending bill, and it just shows there's still a lot of cash coming in for these projects, which will require labor and require, you know, And there's And there continues to be a labor shortage. Um, again, story today in the journal about restaurants just desperately trying to train new staff and keep people and how difficult it can be to satisfy customers whose patience sort of has worn out to a certain extent, given we're uh, we got a jobs report next past week. the pandemic. We'll, get, we'll see the jobs report. Because I got, I got a lot of... Uh, different news to get to this morning, more stock specific. I do want to start with just covering uh, the very important trial taking place in San Francisco, though not today. Uh, Today they have a day off. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday will conclude the government versus Microsoft or more specifically the FTC versus Microsoft. Right now, those who are listening to, watching, parsing every word in the trial say Microsoft seems to be winning. But, right, you never know. Um, let's give you a quick highlights, though, from Friday, where Xbox CEO uh, testifying in court. And this, this, you have to think, was something the judge will include in her opinion, perhaps, right? Uh, when she asked, um, you're testifying under oath. This is uh, Phil Spencer, who runs uh, Xbox. Uh, that you will make future versions of Call of Duty available for the PlayStation 5. And he said, that's right. And she reminded him, the judge, you're testifying under oath. And he said, yes, I'm making the commitment, standing here, that we will not pull Call of Duty from PlayStation. Obviously, that's Sony's PlayStation. That's one of the key arguments. And so you do, that was a moment. There's a few of them. Government hasn't had any yet, as, at least as far as we're aware. But we'll see what the next three days of trial brings. We very well could get a decision on the preliminary injunction. We expect to prior to the July 18th termination of the merger agreement. And then the question will be, for whom does the bell toll? No, the question will really be, does Microsoft choose to potentially, as some people are now writing, close around the CMA? Nobody can explain to me how that would work. Remember the UK regulator that's opposed the deal that they're now appealing? But it is at least something people are talking about. We'll watch it closely. Um, we'll talk about this IBM deal. 
you know, it's Vista selling again. And Vista has been the large technology-focused private equity firm run by Robert Smith has been monetizing a lot. I got some numbers here for you if you want to listen to them. Uh, last 18 months, um, completed or signed 18 monetization events, generated 18 billion in total value, including monetizations of 14.3 billion, Sarah. Yeah. Uh, and that includes Datto, Ping, Cvent, and Aptio, uh, which is a cloud-based software solutions provider that was bought by uh, Vista for 1.94 billion in January of 2019. Right, they IPO'd in 2016, and then Vista took it private, and now IBM wants it. So the reason IBM wants it is what this company does. It does software to help companies deal with their technology spend and make them more efficient, which, which a lot of the analysts and, and also IBM says is, is very much, um, has been a strategic focus and a growth business for them. In other words, and it fits really well with the macro economy right now where companies are trying to, they're, they're by default spending more on tech as they get into AI and they move to the cloud. And so they have to try to become more efficient with the way they spend that. And that's what apparently this company does. It gives companies the tools to do that. So it adds to IBM's sort of services portfolio. We're going to talk to Rob Thomas, who led this deal at IBM. He's the head of software for that company um, and the chief commercial officer under Arvind Krishna about why it makes sense for, RBM, for IBM, David, about the, the price yeah. they paid for yeah. this. But it, it's clearly a leader when it comes to financial management and operational IT, which is on par with IBM and its strategy, where it just raised a bunch of debt, and part of the, the new strategy post-Kindle was to do M&A like this. Yep, uh, and for Vista, of course, they're in the private equity business. The idea is you buy these things, there's leverage to do so, but you're, and then you want to exit. There have not been that many exits, but Vista certainly, as we just indicated, has been uh, active in monetizing uh, what have been uh, good investments, it would seem, for that firm. Speaking of private equity, I want to get to Apollo this morning, but not because it's doing private equity. In fact, Mark Rowan, who runs the company, made it clear when we sat down at the, uh, at the Milken conference a couple of months back, you know, he said, listen, private equity is an amazing business. Um, we do it better than anyone, I'm quoting him, but it's not a growth business. What is a growth business? Private credit. $450 billion in private credit at Apollo, far in excess, of course, of the 75 billion they have in private equity. I mention it because this is where the, this is where the action's at. You know, you can't raise debt in the public markets or perhaps you don't want to do so for any number of reasons or including you have to pay so much for it. Well, Wolfspeed, um, which is, uh, uh, provides industry-leading solutions for efficient energy consumption and sustainable future, that's at least what they say, it's a chip maker. Um, raises what could be as much as $2 billion over time uh, from Apollo for notes, Sarah, 9.875% mature in 2030. So seven-year notes, um, and they're getting almost a 10% return. They'll hold that. They just sit on that, and they're happy to get their 10%, or 9.875. That's, a, he says, Mark Rowan, a great business to be in at this point, obviously, You've got players who are far larger than even they are when you look at the black rocks of the world. But uh, private credit. But they're credit, all in it. It's booming. We've been talking about private credit when it comes to financing leverage buyouts for some period of time, displacing many of the banks that typically had played prominently in that role. But private credit is everywhere now. KKR, Aries. Luau. HPS. I mean, there's so many. Everybody's just in it. Family offices now yep. are getting into it. Yep. TCW. You wonder what the risk is 
at some point, right? I mean, the returns are very good right now. Returns are very everybody's strong right jumping now. in. Right. Uh, the risks are that, yeah, companies like Wolfspeed don't make it. Don't make good. Yeah. Right. Uh, but you can see right now it's having a positive impact on that company. Uh, stock price as well. Finally, on the M&A front, in the public markets, I did want to mention AMED, Amadisis, uh, Amadisis terminates uh, a deal it had to be acquired by Option, uh, option Care. Um, UNH is coming in to do it. That was not unexpected. We told you when we first heard about the UNH bid, 101 cash stock, that that was likely because they weren't even going to be able to get the vote anyway, Option Care, its own shareholders. Now the question becomes, is Option Care Health uh, potentially for sale as well. That's pure speculation, certainly on the part of some shareholders who'd like it to be the case, but did want to bring that up to date. Uh, Optum is going to be, they have entered a definitive agreement, stopped, you know, uh, terminated their previous agreement, paid the break fee, and they're on their way. I had a lot of M&A today. I really did, unexpected. The action packed kind of, yeah. summer Monday. The only thing I was going to also mention was China, which I think is definitely part of the narrative today because we're, we're looking still for more data on the consumer. And we got these tourism numbers on the Dragon Boat Festival, which is always a big deal. When I was living in Hong Kong, I remember it was like the one time people took off work during the day was to go watch it. So 140.7 million people trips were made in China over the three-day Dragon Boat Festival. It was up 89% from the year from last year. But, and here's what people are focusing on, 22.8% lower than the pre-COVID levels of 2019, just adding to the sort of doom around, doom and gloom we've seen lately around the Chinese consumer recovery and, and economic recovery. The stock market there has been under pressure. I'll be really curious, Carl, to see what Nike has to say. Nike reports Thursday after the bell. And we know the China story has been a, a rebounding one for them and very important to that profitability yeah. story as well. Although Nike's the top performing down name this morning, up uh, 2%. Uh, page one of the journal is all about companies siloing off China uh, to cut risk. And of course, we just had a state dinner uh, with uh, Prime Minister Modi. So you can see some of the shifting winds around the world today. Dow's up 50. Let's get to Bob Pisani. Hey, Bob. Morning, guys. Uh, and Sarah's mentioning China uh, bouncing today, but weak session overnight uh, in China. Just take a look at the sectors because what's happening is uh, encouraging a little bit of widening out because uh, we saw the uh, sectors moving to the upside there. There we go. Thank you. Banks, energy, laggards moving up. China, which has been a notable laggard for weeks now, uh, a little stronger day, although not in China. And semiconductors, which had a not great week last week, uh, bouncing today. So two things I want to highlight, and Sarah mentioned China. Uh, Shanghai had a very weak session, down about 2%, and it is essentially um, up 1% or 2% for the year. That's been on a downward trajectory uh, for uh, weeks now. The Shenzhen, more growthier part, is essentially flat for the year after starting off really with the bang. So Sarah's right, uh, the China data has been weaker. I think we get PMI for China on Thursday night. We'll keep an eye on that. The other thing is the semiconductors. A lot of big names had were down mid-single, high-single digits last week, uh, including Intel, AMD, ST Micro, Skyworks, uh, Broadcom, uh, all bouncing a little bit today. But just let me show you what happened last week because there were broader concerns about higher interest rates and maybe some slower growth. Intel was down almost 9%, AMD. So a lot of people have been calling for some kind of summer correction as some of these names have had a big, big move up. And it's it, it, part of it arguably started last week. Meantime, this whole valuation question on big cap tech, people are still struggling to try to make it clear what this is going on here. We're seeing seasonally lighter volumes coming after the end of the quarter this week. We're going to get seasonally lighter volumes, uh, sky high prices and valuation, and we're new worries about higher rates. And that's kind of what pr put pressure on some of the big cap uh, tech names last week. 
Uh, Chris Harvey over at Wells Fargo and others have been very colorful trying to describe how big $3 trillion is. That's the market cap of Apple. David and I had a discussion about this a few weeks ago, and a lot of people were incredulous about these, these numbers we were putting up. But it's true. And Chris Harvey adopted this over the weekend. $2.9 trillion Apple is about the same as the GDP of France. People find this perhaps not the best way to make a apples to apples comparison, but it gives you an idea of how big these companies really are. Microsoft is as big as Italy at this point, two and a half trillion and $2.2 trillion for the Italian economy. Alphabet as big as Mexico, 1.7 roughly uh, a piece for, uh, for Mexico compared uh, to Alphabet. Uh, and you can see that. Uh, then you can go on and on with this. The whole point is uh, these numbers are absolutely enormous. The bull case is that AI is going to continue to drive valuations higher and that AI is going to do for valuations what the Internet did for some companies in the 1990s. That's the bull scenario. Others have different opinions. Finally, I just want to talk about, David was talking about some M&A deals, but we have some big IPOs coming this week. They're, the IPO market is starting to open up. We talked about this several weeks ago with Kava. This week, Fidelis uh, down here at the NYC on Thursday. It's a big property, global property reinsurer, 300 million. Kodai Gas Services, big natural gas. Savers Value Village. This is the largest for-profit thrift operator in the United States. And just this morning, a big Mexican commercial real estate firm announced they were going probably on Friday morning here at the NYC, Vesta Real Estate. This is Mexican real estate. So yes, these are niche players, but and no guys, we don't have the, the you know the, the big uh, tech names that are out there, the unicorns. Uh, but Carl, the market is definitely starting to open up a little bit for IPOs. Back to you. Yeah, makes the second half interesting, Bob. Thanks, uh, Bob Pisani. As we go to break, let's check bonds. Uh, Sarah mentioned uh, some activity in yields today. When we are going to get some data over the next few days, we'll get uh, durables, some GDP revisions, uh, PCE, income spending. Ten-year did get down to about three six eight or so, lower since June 7th. Uh, rebounding just a touch here with the Dow up 66. Check out Uber this morning, almost back to 45. That's going to be a one-year high. Bernstein's out today. Top pick says could be one of the most compelling FCF growth stories in the Internet for the next two to three years. They see buybacks coming. And if they get uh, positive gap earnings for a couple quarters, maybe S&P inclusion, they say, by the second quarter of next year. Dow's up 51 to start the week. Don't go anywhere. China expressing some support for Russia following the mercenary armed revolt in that country over the weekend. Eunice Yun is live in Beijing with more. Morning, Eunice. Hey, Carl. Well, the foreign ministry here uh, today again reiterated that as a, quote, friendly neighbor and strategic partner, uh, China supports Russia's national stability and said that the rebellion is Russia's internal affair. Now, over the weekend, the foreign minister, as well as the vice foreign minister, hosted Russia's deputy foreign minister who flew here to Beijing. Uh, the Russian foreign ministry uh, said that the Chinese reaffirmed their interest in strengthening the cohesion and further prosperity of Russia. Uh, the Chinese side quoted the vice foreign minister as saying that China-Russia ties are in their best period in history. Now, none of this is surprising given that President Xi Jinping has only been deepening his ties uh, with Russia as well as his so-called best friend, President Putin, throughout the Ukraine crisis. Uh, China has yet to condemn uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, the Chinese state press has been uh, playing up and praising President Putin for his, quote, unwavering determination 
to maintain unity and also mocking the uh, Western media as well as Western politicians for uh, their what they called wishful thinking of a weakened Putin. Now, the official readout, interestingly, did not uh, describe support for Putin personally. However, um, the indications so far, Carl, really are that China uh, is going to stick by Russia uh, despite those developments over the weekend. Uh, Eunice, appreciate that. It's an important story, obviously. And uh, guys, as we turn to the markets, uh, energy has been the one area where it really got uh, some chatter over the weekend. Not a surprise, Sarah, that uh, energy is the top leading sector right now. But though Brent is uh, Brent's up a percent, so so we're seeing we're seeing some movement there. Also, a lot of people are watching the Urals crude, uh, which is of course in Russia, which has been well below the price of Brent uh, and has come up a little bit on this news. Just instability and questions over what happens in Russia leads to second half oil risk. That, that's the bottom line from some of the analysts this morning, including Halima Croft, who was on our show uh, on CNBC earlier. And Sarah, that analyst who joined us on Friday from, what was it, BMO, BMO yeah. talking about the REITs, the ones focused on office uh, properties, looking good today with SL Green, SL Green up 15% yeah. on that deal and Vernado up 7.7% as well. So a, a bright spot in the marketplace that we haven't These seen. These were shorted. They were heavily shorted. Heavily shorted names. Right. And, you know, uh, both up. Yeah, baby steps, baby steps, at least in New York City. Uh, the VIX did get above 14, although settling back just below. Uh, equities are higher, though, on this Monday morning. Don't go away. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix.